Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. After the mistrial, somebody said that um, you and Judge Rainwater went back to the jury room and... and and you polled the uh, the actual jurors. Uh, is that true? Is that allowed? Is that no, no. That, first of all, that's not true. Uh, I'm not allowed to approach any juror at all, except after the trial and with their permission. They get to approach me. They're given a strict instruction that they don't have to talk to anybody. If they choose to, they can go talk with them. But you know, no, they can't just. They can't do that. So I've I've never done that. When the jury, you know, said guilty, you know, what was his face like? Like you were. I I saw him standing forward, but I could just see his like his body just kind of like he wanted to fall on the floor. I mean, like just disappear. I just I really we did not. I had bought I bought a bunch of snacks and candies and cookies and stuff for him that you know he hadn't got to have and he told me what he wanted and I brought it with me because we didn't think there was any way that these people could really believe that he would do this and we thought he was coming home. I'm John A. Torres and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast where justice lies. A quick warning, this episode contains adult language. Now, we pick up our story in between Jeff Abramowski's two murder trials for the killing of 78-year-old Dick Courtney Crandall. Actually, we pick it up about two weeks before his second trial is slated to begin. Remember, in December 2005, Jeff's first trial ended in a mistrial when a jailhouse informant recanted and refused to testify for the state. The informant claimed that the chief detective had pressured him to lie and say that Jeff had confessed the crime to him. Now, on June 9, 2006, nearly six months after that first trial, Jeff is sitting in the Brevard County Jail in a part of the county known as Sharps, a place as gray and drab as the concrete and barbed wire encircling the jail at the center of it. And Jeff is growing more and more frustrated with his attorney, public defender Steve Weisoker. Jeff says that he can never get Weisoker on the phone, and he starts to feel like his own attorney is doubting his innocence. He doesn't know it yet, but soon another attorney is about to walk into his life promising that she can free him. But she's carrying a big secret. A big secret that Jeff will only discover when it's already too late. Steve refused to help me. He did not do nothing. He would not let me see my discovery for two years. He would not, he would not do anything. I had a Nelson hearing, right, to try to get rid of Steve to get another attorney. I got another attorney eventually. Once I got that attorney, that public defender, when I called, he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, that's Steve's baby. So now Jeff is kind of stuck, right? 
He dials the public defender's office. He wants to get Steve Wysoka on the phone to talk about the upcoming trial. He wants to know what's going on. He's running out of time to prepare. I'm in, I'm in the quad. I try to call Steve during the day, working hours, and uh, his secretary said he's not in. So I go ahead. Oh, no, no. She said he's on the phone. He's on the other line. So I hang up, and I start to get up away from the phones, and uh, the guy in the officer upstairs goes, you have an attorney visit. I said, I'm looking at the phone thinking, ain't no way. I said, you got the right guy, Abramowski, right? Get up there. So I go up there. There's a woman sitting there. She sits there, and I look, and I didn't recognize her. So I said, Pfft. so I'm turning around to go back downstairs, and she beats in the glass. She said, come on in. So I go in, and she says, hi, have a seat. And she says, I'm Laura Seamers. I'm an attorney. I believe in you. Uh, I know you're innocent, and, and I can win this case. My husband is Steve, the one you got. I go like, oh, my God. And she goes, he never did anything. He never tried to help you. He, he, he never lifted a finger. He, 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 nothing. He didn't do nothing. So to make a long story short, uh, she begged me to, to, to let her take it. She said, I can beat this. I can win. I, 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 the DNA yeah. is going to clear you. Now, Laura had been privy to some of the evidence in the case, thanks to her husband. And what really struck her were the two long police interrogations with Jeff. She said Jeff behaved exactly like you would expect an innocent person to behave. She also felt the hair and blood evidence clearly pointed to Judy Foley and her adult son Bruce Foley as the possible killers. Remember, when police found Dick Crandall, he was clutching a snarl of Judy's hair and her son's blood was in the master bathroom sink. At the very least, Laura thought, that should cast some doubt as to Jeff's guilt. She said she was convinced she'd be the one to beat the rap for Jeff and send him home a free man. I believed Jeff was innocent. I knew that he was not happy with um, my husband's representation of him. And so I knew what to say. I knew exactly what to say. I knew that he wanted somebody who believed in him. I told him that I believed he was innocent and I knew that I could win the case and I convinced him to let me take over the case 10 days before it was set for trial and I wanted somebody to help me. Nobody was helping me. Everybody was just pushing me straight to prison. So finally I said, you know what, you'll really try to help me? And she said, yes. She told me everything I wanted to hear. Jeff wasn't the only one excited to have a private attorney on the case, someone who actually believed in him. His daughter Jamie, who was not in the courtroom for the first trial, decided to skip school and attend every day of the second one. I was in high school, and I didn't see the first one with the mistrial, but the second one with Laura Seamers, I went every day because he was so excited to have her. We, he thought, he called me, I remember when he took, she took over, he said, I have a paid attorney who wants to help me. She believes in me, and I know she's going to do it. She's going to bring me home. But sometimes things seem too good to be true. And if you're wondering whether taking a murder case on 10 days before it is set to go to trial is a little strange, you're not alone. Attorneys I've spoken to say they need at least a year to 18 months to properly prepare for a trial. One attorney friend of mine told me it took him three years to prepare for a murder trial, and that the absolute quickest he would feel comfortable with is a year. Now, that wasn't the only strange thing to happen during this time. We'll get into most of it in a bit, but first, according to Jeff, there was an odd late-night visit. Okay, Laura comes to see me twice at the county jail. The first time we talked for about an hour and a half, 
Then we went into the courtroom. The second time she comes, she comes up at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I don't, they wake me up. They say she's up there. I go up there. She's sitting there. I try to talk about my case, right? She said, I don't want to talk about the case. I said, what do you want to talk about? She says, whatever. I said, are you for real? So we just talked about what's going on out there yeah. in, in the world. Yeah. 30 minutes later, I'm back in my cell. We never talked about my case wow. at all. Hmm. Well, maybe Laura thought it was important to bond first, to get to know each other a bit before she could properly defend him. What was important, at least to Jeff at the time, is that somebody actually finally believed in him. Is Jeffrey Abramowski an innocent man in prison? Yes, he is. I know that he's innocent. I've known Jeff for 10 years. When I took the case, I knew and I believed that there was no credible evidence against him, tying him to the murder. He didn't have any motive, and he has an alibi um, that was not checked out by the police. He had no motive to kill his friend, Courtney Crandall. But as it turned out, Laura's belief in Jeff's innocence wasn't enough. There also were some other things that she probably should have told him and would eventually. Things that, as a man facing life in prison, he might have wanted to know about her experience. For example, Laura never told Jeff that she had never tried a murder case before. She never told him that she had never tried a case involving DNA before. Laura never told Jeff that she had only handled two felony cases before his murder trial. That's right, two. Now, in Laura's defense, she wasn't purposely trying to mislead Jeff. There was another factor at play, something she just was no longer in control of. I took on Jeff Abramowski's murder case 10 days before it was set to go to a jury trial, after it had been pending for four years. I had never tried a murder case before. I had never done a case that had DNA um, as part of the evidence. And I was absolutely crazy out of my mind. At the time of the trial, I was psychotic, manic, and under the delusional belief that I was brilliant and I would win the case with no trouble. And um, obviously that's not what happened. She wasn't being dramatic or self-effacing. You see, Laura suffers from mental illness. She's bipolar and had stopped taking her medication. Her illness gave her the sense that she was the smartest attorney in the world. She was delusional and psychotic, and no one knew it but her. I interviewed Laura about this revelation in 2016, and here's what she had to say. I came forward because Mr. Abramowski had never even received a hearing in his quest to have a new trial. I believe that I was... Um, ineffective, what they call ineffect, provided what they call ineffective assistance of counsel in Mr. Abramowski's trial 10 years ago, I was hoping that he would get a hearing at which I would agree that um, I was ineffective as his counsel and that he should receive a new trial based on the fact that I was not prepared enough and I did not do an adequate enough job as his attorney. And um, it was revealed that at the time you had been suffering from a like bipolar delusion. You were not taking your medications. 
Hindsight being 2020, it's pretty obvious that something is not quite right when you watch her in action trying to defend Jeff at trial. She is continuously being warned and reprimanded by the judge. I mean continuously. And she doesn't know how to establish the proper predicate in order to introduce certain pieces of evidence that might have helped Jeff, including those police interrogations with Jeff and the police interviews with Judy Foley, Bruce Foley, and Rita Akeridge in Alabama. She also does a poor job with the DNA evidence and in questioning her own DNA expert, Candy Zuliger, who we heard from in an earlier episode. Candy was called in to raise doubts about the state's DNA findings, which they said could not exclude Jeff from being the donor. Remember that touch DNA under one of Dick's fingernails? They said Jeff matched on two loci out of 15. One of the two, they said, is a rare marker that Jeff also has. Just how rare is it? All that Laura had to do was ask Candy Zuliger, how rare is that 17.3? How rare is that? It's not rare at all. We see it a lot. Would I be sitting here right now? No. That's what got me convicted. Inexperienced, manic, had no clue what she was doing. John Parker grabbed it and ran with it. It got me convicted. I sat here for 13, 14 years now. Laura's illness is perhaps most evident when she continuously objects to a document presented by Prosecutor Rob Parker that had a typo in the date. She goes on and on, and the judge keeps asking her what recourse she would like to take, but Laura is unsure, and she never really has answers for that. What's interesting, too, is that while listening to the bench conferences that the jury is not privy to, it almost feels like at times Judge Tanya Rainwater and Parker are trying to help Laura out but she doesn't really listen. She also followed jurors out to the parking lot after the guilty verdict was read and tried talking to them, which, as we know, is a major no-no. I didn't realize that Laura never looked at discovery, never interviewed any witnesses, never deposed anybody, was off her medications, was was manic, was, was totally out of control. Now, not everything about Laura's defense of Jeff was horrible. I've covered a lot of trials, and to be honest, I thought in watching the video recordings that Laura had some good moments. I thought she did a good job in cross-examining Dick's neighbor, Valeria David, making her testimony sound unreasonable. And she did the same with Chris Vasquez. Remember, he was Jeff's acquaintance who said he dropped Jeff off at the trailer park that Saturday morning. On the stand, he said something like he would drop Jeff off there every weekend. But under Laura's cross, he admitted to only knowing Jeff for a few weeks. Truthfully, though, it would have been hard for most attorneys to challenge witnesses who lied over and over again. The testimony of Judy and Bruce Foley, as well as that from Rita Akeridge, varies wildly from what they originally told police. Now, the system is set up for juries to come to a verdict after hearing truthful testimony and factual evidence. I mean, for crying out loud, even a sheriff's agent lied on the witness stand. I also feel that the trial was a circus due largely to my behavior and um, my psychosis at the time. Everyone got to go home from that circus. Everyone, that is, except for Jeff. He, of course, was sentenced to life in prison. Laura kept in touch with Jeff. She did more than that, actually. She would drive Jamie to go see her dad, and she would often put money into Jeff's prison account so he could buy snacks and hygiene products and other things. Knowing an admission of mental illness would likely mean the end of her legal career, She worked to try and get Jeff out by other means. Then, after running out of options and ideas, she went to see Jeff to tell him the truth. 
Laura, over the years, kept telling me, Jeff, when the truth comes out, the truth will set you free. And I kept asking her, I said, Laura, I said, what do you mean the truth will set me free? And she says to me, she says, she says, I can't tell you right now, but when I do, if I have to, it'll save you. So I went for years without knowing what's going on. Then one day she sits in front of me and she tells me, Jeff, I was manic. I wasn't taking my medication for a very long time. I came and I got into your trial. I should have never did it. I did this to you. I didn't do nothing to help you. I didn't read your discovery. I just went in there and winged it. I believe that that DNA didn't match you. That was enough. And this is what it is. I looked at her and I shook my head. And I said, you mean to tell me you waited nine years to tell me this? And so four months after her revelation to Jeff... Seamers hired another attorney to prepare a motion for post-conviction relief, basically claiming ineffective counsel due to her medical issues and the fact that she had not been treating her illness. The motion was supported by a letter from board-certified forensic psychologist William Reebsame, who wrote the following with regards to what one might expect from a bipolar attorney who was off their meds. Quote, Impairment in this lawyer's ability to function would be expected. For example, decision-making would prove to be quite difficult given the onset of racing thoughts, distractibility, disinterest, and agitation. This legal official might also fail to adequately consider the riskiness of their decisions based upon a grandiose self-perception. Such impaired judgment would be of significant concern. Close quote. The motion went before Judge David Dugan, who denied it writing that the nature of the alleged newly discovered evidence is, in fact, not evidence at all. Instead, it is an allegation of a newly discovered reason for counsel's alleged ineffectiveness. He wrote, quote, The court finds there is no reason why the alleged substantive incidence of counsel's ineffectiveness could not have been raised within the two-year limit. Close quote. You see, appeals or motions claiming ineffective counsel must be done within two years of the verdict. Jeff couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe the court said no, that Laura's admission had come too late. Jeff couldn't believe that Laura held on to her secret that long. You know what the courts told me? It's no good. The courts said I should have did it nine years ago. All she had to do was tell me, and I would have had it. The first time I would have had it. She waited all these years. They said, you're too late, buddy. You can't do nothing about it. And they shot me down again. They said, you should have filed it with your original 3850. Look at where I'm at. It's no good no more. Her crown ain't no good. She did it again. She got me twice. Needless to say, they now have uh, a sort of a strained relationship, though Laura, racked with guilt, vows to do whatever it takes to get Jeff a new trial. In fact, as I was recording this episode, she texted me and said that she was going to go see Jeff this very weekend. 
Will you keep fighting on Jeff's behalf for as long as it takes? I will. I'll never stop. I know that he's innocent. I know he didn't have a fair trial. And I feel largely responsible for that fact. And I will never stop fighting for him. Now, I know what you must be thinking. Jeff Abramowski must be one of the unluckiest people in the world. Because it seems as if everything and anything that could go wrong uh, simply has. Having a lawyer with mental illness has to be the icing on the cake, right? Well, it actually gets worse. Here I am talking about the situation with Jeff's daughter, Jamie. As we have written about your dad's case, it's like what could go wrong... Went wrong. Went wrong. Laura Seymour, I'm sure um, she meant well at the time and she believed it. She still believes in him, right, yes. Right, she does, and she's always pressuring me, what are you going to do Jeff's you know, story from her on the Space Coast? We have to get his story out there. And um, she was off of her medication. Yes, she was, completely gone. She was completely gone. She had never done a murder trial. We had, had no idea. Had never done a trial or an, 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 any kind of case right, like that. Right, only one felony you know, case or like two felony cases, and... How they even allowed it. They knew. We didn't know. But the court knew. And they allowed it. I yeah. mean, and my, my dad had no idea. And the fact that even afterwards, when we found out years later, that the trial courts would say that that's not enough to give you another trial. Like, how is that not right? Like, how do you not think somebody deserves another trial after something like yeah. that? And completely deny you dad doesn't see her outside of that. He only saw her at the trial. I mean, he, right. you know, he doesn't know her personal life or who she is or he was just happy that somebody believed in him. That's all he ever wanted was somebody to believe him and believe in him. And she does believe in him. And, she does. Um, she has lived with this guilt, with yeah. this guilt for years. And then a few years ago, she came forward and, you know, and, you know, and she's risking her entire career because who wants to hire a a lawyer that is having mental illness, right? I mean, the like stigma that goes with that. Exactly. How do you feel about Laura? I mean, um, me and Laura have had some issues. Um, I appreciate her coming forward and saying what she did. And I will say that that took a lot of you know guts to come out and admit what she did wrong, and try to help him. Um, to this day, I still have some issues with her because she basically lied to us. I mean, she lied to all of us. She would take me to visit him in between the years, like, you know, befriended me. Um, and she tried, but it was all a lie. I mean, it was, she was, I think, protecting her guilt without telling us what happened. And my husband, when he first met her, that was before we knew any of this stuff. And he said, I don't, I don't trust her. I don't trust her. There's something different. There's something odd about her. I don't, I don't trust her. And then we find out about all of this. And she could have saved him a long time ago if she would have just came forward and said, listen, this is what I did. But then, you know, eight years, however long it was, passed right. by before you let him sit in there knowing what you, what you did, Tra saying you were trying to help him. But she didn't. She didn't do anything to help him besides send him money to help him live while he was in there. I mean... I mean, I appreciate what she did, yes. Don't get me wrong. I'm very appreciative, but it kind of came a little too late. I think she told me that she was hoping that he would win on some appeal, like in that, you know, over the over that time. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, then... I mean, we never had a lawyer. We, I can't afford a lawyer, and my mom couldn't afford one, and he basically was on his own until we did find a lawyer who screwed us over. But Here's where it gets worse. It's really just unreal. 
And let's talk about that a little bit. Um, the appeal process. Yes. You guys hired Paul Bross. Yes. Who um, I am hoping I can ask him about this case for the mm -hmm. podcast. I don't know if he'll that would you know, be nice. talk to or not. But um, what, what happened there? So my mother-in-law, my husband, my husband got a settlement from a car accident. And he put money along with my mother-in-law to hire Paul Bross for me. We met Paul Bross. And I explained what happened, and I cried my eyes out because, you know, that's my dad. And he said, you know, he would look over it, but he'd like to help us. He sat in my face once he reviewed everything and told me, I believe your dad, and I can help him. I know I can help him. We heard good things about him. And I couldn't, my dad couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it that we found someone who would help us. And, you know, I didn't have $10,000, but I gave him a chunk of a couple grand, and he offered, you can make me payments. Just make me payments every month, and I will help you. And we did until things started getting dismissed because they weren't turned in and we would call I, my dad is my dad knows his case he knows his dates he knows everything that he needs to know and he'd say Jamie call him tell him make sure this is done by this date my dad was writing everything for him telling him what to put in it and he just wouldn't turn anything in he didn't we had to call the courts to find out what was going on and they would get dismissed nothing was turned in it wasn't turned in on time he forgot to put this in it we did get one appeal granted. He, my dad wanted something called a COA, which I don't know exactly what it is done, but Paul said, there's no way we're going to win that. It's like a 99% chance he won't win it. And my dad said, do it. I, I can do it. I want you to do it. I know we can win it. It got granted, and we couldn't believe it. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> like, we finally got one thing that's it granted. And then, you know, the next part of it he had to turn in, he totally... Like, my dad told him, put this in. You have to put this stuff in. Just here, here it is. Put it in. Never got put in, and it got denied. And then after that, just never heard from him again. We stopped paying him because he was screwing everything up, basically. And, I mean, just after that, it's nothing. Yeah, she's right. Actually, Paul Bross is no longer a practicing attorney after being slapped with a five-year suspension by the Florida Bar for basically not following up on cases for which he was paid. He wouldn't show up or file things when he was supposed to, and for also mishandling clients' money which had been placed in a trust. Then in September 2017, he was arrested for drug paraphernalia and driving with knowledge of a suspended driver's license. In 2018, he pled no contest to charges and was ordered to pay some fines. I know he's appealing his Florida bar suspension, I have reached out to Paul and have not heard back. So once again, Jeff gets, to put it crudely, screwed. Where's your dad's case now? Is he out of appeals? Is he, what's the deal? We have one more appeal that he's just turned in actually pro bono, you know, by himself. Like most prison lifers, Jeff has become quite adept at churning out legal documents and appeals. But even as Jeff tries to find any avenue he can to prove his innocence, he keeps coming back to the same question. Why me? Why did police focus on me? Next time on Murder on the Space Coast Where Justice Lies, we try to get to the bottom of exactly why the investigation switched from the Foley's to Jeff Abramowski. I've sat in prison for years and wondered what, what was going on with all this, right? I have no clue what these people were doing with me. It was Bruce, Judy, and Rita who pointed a finger at me. Once they got the finger at me and they started coming after me, they brought me into the precinct and they talked to me. I now, you've also made friends um, 
on social media with the victim's granddaughter. Yes, I mean, she. <laughs> I don't know. Stacy Swank. Yes, right? years she ago. She believes in your dad. She's an amazing woman. Yes. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.